Hey, everybody. I'm Kelly Ellers. I'm Jeffrey London. And this is Volume Up by the Tees. All right. So are you ever going to buy Cinnamon Toast Crunch again? You Kelly. saw what happened, right? <laughs> I saw... You know, no. I kind of want to buy it just to see whether to, or not there are shrimp tails in the bag. Like, same. what the hell? And then I love how the brand was like, no, that's just caramelized. No, <laughs> it's not. I zoomed in. I looked. I looked again. I looked at all the other pictures on the Internet, and it is shrimp tails. Shrimp tails, other assorted, disgusting things that are also in that batch. I mean, truly a horror. Right? Um <laughs> So I'm not home in where I live right now. I'm in a different state, but I am positive that we have a box of cinnamon toast crunch in the pantry. And as soon as I get home, it's coming open. Just rip it, <laughs> rip it open, pour it out, explore that bad boy. And then I think you got to photo it for us. Like, oh just, yeah, I will. Okay. Let's, let's see. I, we, let's dive deep. Let's get to the bottom of this. See if it's a widespread problem for General Mills. How is a shrimp tail? I mean, it was probably someone's lunch, right? They're just like, let's give this a whirl. Fling. You know, I mean, you, when you see those like advisory notes that are like, it's processed in a place where there's like tree nuts and like you don't <laughs> often think. Processed in a place where there are shrimp tails. Where there are shrimp tails. Just, just about, just mm -hmm. near the cereal. So I mean, when you think about how they're getting protein, mm -hmm. that's not. That's not mm -hmm. how I would think about fortifying cereal. <laughs> um, and it makes me feel slightly better about getting like the bougie Whole Foods, like organic okay. versions of it. Like the like cinnamon squares, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but now I'm slightly worried that there's like, you know, jumbo prawns right. in there. Oh, right. Yeah. You know? It's a healthier <laughs> sort of seafood tail in lobster claws. <laughs> okay. I love it. All right. Yep. That's just too yep. much. All right, back to Too business. Too much indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so if you liked last week's interview with Mickey Wright, host of the Beauty Superstars podcast, make sure that you subscribe, rate, and review. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, at Read the Tees. And send us questions to volumeupatthetees.com. Did that reader ever get back to us about our energy? Uh, you know, I've not heard. Okay. It's not come through yet, but right. I feel like any day now, we're just, mm -hmm. we're just a day away from it. Yeah. Uh, we'll try to we keep the energy up. It. Speaking of energy, today's podcast is going to have a lot of it. There's opposing sides. We're going to talk about all sorts of things uh, related to regulation. So on today's episode, we're going to switch it up a little bit. We're talking to guests about the regulatory processes for the salon professional industry. Hot topic. Today, we're going to hear from a salon owner in Florida who believes that the industry should loosen up regulations. And we'll also talk to the Professional Beauty Association's Advocacy Program Manager on what the PBA's role has been as a voice for the industry across the country to do the opposite. It's going to be a good one. I like that we're mixing up the format. We'll mm -hmm. see how it goes. Throw <laughs> caution will. to the wind. All right. So before we get there, but aside from the shrimp tail, the cinnamon toast shrimp tails, what else is bothering you? Do <laughs> you have any other rants, food related or not? So we're obviously living through another moment of racial and social upheaval. Uh, specifically, there's a spike in hate crimes um, and racially motivated attacks against Asian American and Pacific Islanders. Uh, this has culminated in a shooting recently in Atlanta, which was horrific. Um, but there was an awful sort of story that came out of Texas of a shop owner uh, who was beaten, um, Asian American, 
and really, it seems to be that there's this problem across the US, which is well documented now, um, really, really tragic. What we're hoping, however, is that this is going to, similar to the movement for Black Lives Matter, uh, force some changes within the beauty industry uh, to address issues of diversity, um, inclusivity, to really shake things up um, in ways that we sort of touched on even last week with Mickey Wright. You know, I couldn't agree more, Jeff. We are living through a sad, sad time in history. And, you know, I'm glad that there is coverage around things like this to learn and teach and educate and do better. And, you know, thanks to our editorial team that's been really keeping their finger on the pulse of this what and how it relates to our industry as well. So a lot of articles on the T's, um, a lot of voices being featured there as well. For sure. So we're all about stopping Asian hate. Uh, and certainly, as Kelly said, talking about brands that are standing up to make a difference, uh, which is so needed at the moment. Speaking of our editorial team, you know, they've been hard at work uncovering industry news, diving into the brands you don't know, but should. Here are a few headlines from the tease.com this week. And starting off for me is a super cool um, new brand called Glow. And it is essentially a salon recycling company. They've partnered with other salon brands nationwide to offer a three-month subscription for for free PPE recycling. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've got all this PPE we're protecting, but where's it going? How are we recycling it? And I think it's mm -hmm. a really interesting concept and point of view and something that is certainly needed within our industry as well as everywhere. Um, because I was reading something too about, you know, the amount of like masks that are being like washed up in the ocean. And it's like, mm -hmm. holy smokes. In a year, we've just now contributed just that much more waste, you know? And so- Again, super cool company. I mean, the stat that I read on their site that every minute more than 877 pounds of waste is generated by salons just in North America, which is 421,000 pounds of waste every single day. I mean, where literally, where is it going? So yeah. we need to recycle it. They are experts in recycling. So check them out on the tease.com, um, an article called Recycle Your Salons PPE with Glow Salons. Love that story. Uh, one that I'm really into right now, uh, given that it's Women's History Month uh, in the month of March still, is an article called Seven Women-Owned Hair Brands to Support Now and Always. So this is basically our tribute to women that are making history right now. Uh, it's a listicle of seven brands that you maybe don't know, but definitely should, uh, specific to hair care. Uh, so lots of times we talk about color, we talk about this, that, and the other. This is all things oils, creams, you're going to love it. Uh, so brands like Ceremonia, We the People, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, yeah, get in there. All right, get in there. And the last one for me is, you know, I'm seeing this on the, the social medias everywhere is Clever Man. So, you know, it's to me, it's kind of like, wow, why hasn't someone done this yet? For men. I mean, it was just for men, right? The hair color for men that for beards or, you know, grays, if you will. And so this is just a modernized take on it. And I got to say, I think they nailed it. I mean, the packaging is amazing, really simplistic, really easy to use. So I'm kind of interesting to see where this brand goes, to be honest. For sure. I mean, I was also very interested in them. Uh, I thought the concept of the sort of like tailored box that arrives yeah. in your door versus the maybe slightly embarrassing just for men box that you would see mm -mm. in a target aisle. Yeah. yeah. So mm -hmm. I, I just, again, that article is great. Lets you know about all aspects of the brand, how to get it. Uh, love that story too. I mean, I'm not getting my husband to the barbershop or salon to color his grays because he's got a couple. He insists on pulling them out. Not good. Also. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I could maybe talk him into doing this at home. So anyway, mm-hmm. clever man, mm-hmm. you are clever, clever. We got you. As always, so much going on at thetease.com. Thanks to our editors. You're amazing. We're proud to publish the stories that salon pros and consumers care about. Boom. Before we get to today's interview, we want to open up the conversation a little bit about licensing and lobbying within the beauty industry. An ongoing conversation within the industry is the proposed deregulation of Cosmos, Nails, Barbers, and other licenses at the state level. These conversations have continued to be in the spotlight during the COVID-19 pandemic, as licenses require professionals to keep and maintain health and safety regulations specific to each state. We talked about this with Leslie Roasty at length um, from Blue Co. Brands on episode six of this very podcast. License requirements are built by state boards and can vary in difficulty and breadth. We all know this. These boards then require continuing education credits to maintain licensure. I mean, this issue is obviously incredibly important to stylist salon owners and schools because so much so that there are numerous, quote, trade or membership organizations around the country with the sole purpose of supporting the licenses of the professional industry. A few of those are the Professional Beauty Association, which we'll be hearing from today, um, as well as Cosmetologist Chicago that's protecting, building, and driving the salon industry uh, by monitoring and lobbying for professional licenses. So there are some organizations out there that are have been for many years kind of stepping up, lobbying, and fighting this. Um, and I'm really excited to hear a bit more from the PBA group today. For sure. One of the questions that we've been having, and certainly that we know that our audience is asking is, is why? Why is this happening now? Right. I mean, we've seen that, you know, on YouTube, there are plenty examples of what happens when there's not expertise, licensure, sort of going at hair. Um, and particularly right now with COVID-19, mm-hmm. safety regulations seem all the more important. Uh, right. That's just my perspective. Uh, we're going to get into it, though. Uh, it's important to have contrasting points of view and to really get down to the nitty gritty of, of what's at stake. Yeah, I mean, how many DIY fails are there on YouTube, right? I mean, the hair falls out. It's like mm, burns off the bleach, Chemi- the burn. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's all over the chemicals. I mean, this needs to be regulated. Yet in states all over the country, our industry has to fight those laws, some that are sunsetting, meaning we need to revisit them on a regular basis, and then some that appear when politically relevant for politicians. So mm-hmm. because the laws are perceived as overregulation and unnecessary and could work to help with funding issues, reduce the size of government, or as a result of misconceptions of the industry itself. So there's a list of current bills that include some sort of deregulation on the table. So if you're not familiar with what those are or where this is happening, here's the roster. Minnesota, would allow legislation for anyone to cut and color hair without a license. Arkansas, again, would allow anyone to shampoo, condition, dress, dry, style, flat iron, and curl without a license. Nevada, it would add blow drying and curling to the definition of a shampoo technician and can be practiced after 20 hours and does not require Mm -hmm. a license. And finally, West Virginia, Uh, I know, Jeff, that you're going to talk a little bit about this in depth, so I won't go into it. But again, this is what's happened even in the last 30 days, a little bit over a month, right? So Minnesota, Arkansas, Nevada, and West Virginia. So uh, four states that are going to need some immediate attention by all of our our groups out there helping to to save our licensure. This week, I talked with a multi-location salon owner from Florida, Mike Vanderbilt, who sees deregulation as a tool to solve some of the industry's challenges. 
And I also talked with Katie Raposa, Advocacy Program Manager at the Professional Beauty Association, or PBA, on why trade organizations disagree. First, let's connect with Mike, who we'll hear more from on a later podcast. He was able to provide a stylist salon owner's insight on the topic of deregulation. On this Monday's podcast, we chatted about the importance of licensing within the industry. We'd love to get your thoughts as a salon owner. You've been vocal in your local community about some of the challenges within the beauty space, specifically education, lack of experience. What are solutions for some of these local challenges? Um, you know, my viewpoint actually stems more from uh, taking care of the, uh, the person, the stylist, the individual. I think sometimes licensing has well and has uh, good intentions, but there's some side effects that are overlooked. Um, I think my biggest frustration with licensing is that we are confusing licensing with skill. A lot of times you hear the unlicensed person will X, Y, Z. It's, you know, I know plenty of hairdressers or hairdresser stories where they've been licensed and they've caused, they've caused harm, you know, to some degree to their clients. So license, so I'd like to separate out licensing and skill into two different categories, uh, mm-hmm. because I don't think, you know, just because your license makes you uh, skillful. On the licensing part, my biggest comparison that I'm going to not from based on my background, I do actually have, I was initially in restaurants and I've never understood why the salon industry isn't licensed like a restaurant. So a restaurant, the restaurant is licensed, has to have licensing, sanitation guidelines, but the chefs don't have licensing. You know, mm-hmm. there isn't a chef doesn't have to go out, get an occupational license to do his craft. And it's not like chefs can't do harm to the public interest. Um, I feel that the licensing of individuals is a barrier to entry for many stylists, as especially new stylists, coming into the workforce. I think it is an unnecessary barrier that prevents us as an industry from growing and acquiring new talent. I would I would much rather the licensing aspect be on the salon versus the individual because we're really saying pay this money and then you can work. So it's almost like a, a somewhat of a shakedown on the individual. So that's that's one aspect that I have of licensing that I disagree with. And I also feel that licensing is used now to even for entry-level positions. I believe in the state of Florida, you need to be licensed to shampoo out chemicals, colors, perms, et cetera. I mean, that I feel like that's an overreach of its initial intent. So that means as a salon owner, you technically can't hire someone that isn't a hairdresser because they can't, I mean, unless you're, unless all you do is haircuts, but I mean, so these are barriers to entry that do the industry more harm than good. What level of deregulation would you be comfortable with in Florida, for example? I would literally like to move to the type of licensing that allows that requires the business to be licensed, 
not the stylist. Another aspect of licensing that is very confusing, and we've seen it often, especially in the, this post-pandemic world, where there, we've seen a lot of people move from state to state, mm-hmm. these licensing requirements are different in each state. Some states require 50, you know, 1,200 hours, other states 1,000 hours, 1,500 hours, et cetera, et cetera. And even if you have reciprocity, so let's say you've worked in New York. I was talking to one of my stylists the other day, and she was giving, as I was asking her questions about this particular topic, she worked for six years in New York um, as a cosmetologist. She actually worked in the theater industry, which in the theater and movie industry, makeup artists and hairdressers, actually people that work in that industry are not licensed, nor do they have to be. But if you work in a salon doing the exact same work, you need to be licensed. So there's a, there's a huge disconnect on a large parts of this. But then since she was moving from New York and I hired her, New York has, I believe, a thousand hour requirement, Florida's 1200, but the state of Florida said, since you've been working in a salon up there for six years, you can have reciprocity, but there's a a little asterisk on that. You need to have a local school validate that your education in New York is up to par. And of course, every school charges an exorbitant amount of money for that. This is licensing is sounds all good and well. In the end, it's protectionism that hurts the individual. I couldn't tell you how many individuals that I've interviewed over the years that have that wanted to move to Florida. Seems like everybody wants to move to Florida. And, you know, that is one of their major hurdles in actually making that transition from wherever they're moving to has been the licensing. The, the hours and whatnot, and they end up, have, some of them don't, I mean, they don't make it. Um, so it's a barrier to entry, especially for the young people, and it, co- it makes the cost that much more out of reach for many starting individuals. So certainly you're not alone in this feeling uh, that, for example, there should be less regulation, um, that there shouldn't be licensing to this extent. Um, what is your advice for folks that feel similarly? Where should they go? Uh, who should they talk to about voicing their their frustrations or concerns? Well, I know there's a big I know there's a big licensing uh, you know, anti licensing movement within several states. I would imagine uh, more red states than blue states. Share your opinion. Let your opinion be known. You know, I actually have a very good working relationship with my local um, uh, area congresswoman out of Tala- out of Tallahassee. She's actually on the blue team, but she is she understands that licensing can be overburdensome. In fact, if you actually uh, the previous administration, Michelle Obama actually even mentioned the onerous burdens of license of excessive licensing. I think we want to kind of make sure that we mention excessive licensing to entry to careers. I think we've now created all kinds of excessive barriers for entry, and a lot of industries. Let's face it are doing this to keep to keep the number of people in the industry low so you can keep the cost of that particular service high. We just don't want someone who, who can blow dry their own hair at home. For some reason, they can't blow dry somebody's hair in a retail space, which is ridiculous. 
excessive licensing is an important distinction. All right, well, thank you for your perspective on that. Uh, we really do appreciate it. And we know that certainly people feel similarly uh, and it's important to talk about these things. Perfect, thank you. Not to both sides it here, but that's exactly what we're gonna do. We also talked with Katie Raposa, who spent much of her professional career fighting deregulation on behalf of beauty pros. Here's our conversation. Today, we are talking with Katie Raposa, Advocacy Program Manager for the PBA. Katie, how's it going? Hi, Jeffrey. I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Our audience is really going to be interested in hearing what you guys have to say, particularly about some bills that are making their way through state legislatures across the U.S. at a curious time. Uh, let's start with a little bit of background on you, Katie. Advocacy Program Manager, big title. What is it that you do for the PBA and how did you get to them? Yeah, absolutely. So I started with PBA about six and a half years ago in an admin role in government affairs. Um, quickly learned that the beauty industry is a lot more complicated than I could have ever imagined. So, uh, you know, just started to learn about all the different pieces as I also learned about government affairs um, and how licensing differs in all 50 states. Um, so it's just a lot of moving pieces and I had to kind of hit the ground running in my learning um, in every sphere. So uh, kind of moved my way around there. And then um, I think it was 2018, I was promoted to uh, the advocacy program manager. Um, and obviously in the last year, things have had to expand even further. So kind of doing, you know, even more than we ever, ever thought possible. It seems like with the coronavirus not really stopping at this point, it seems a more vital role than ever, honestly, the one that the PBA is taking um, in terms of spearheading so much of this important work. Um, what is the PBA's position on licensing? Yeah, so our position on licensing is that it is necessary to maintain the health and safety of consumers and make sure that there is oversight for the industry to keep it professional. And all of our policy positions kind of come from our board of directors, which is made in our advisory councils, which is made up of people within the industry, all different segments of the industry. PBA represents the salon professional, salon owners, as well as di distributors, sorry, and manufacturers. And um, so we kind of bring all of them together. Everybody has a seat at the table. They have real time discussions about um, what the effects of different policy positions would be and what their perspective is um, from where they come from in the industry. And then they kind of guide our policy positions. And then Myra and I are able to put those into practice um, as legislation comes to the pipeline to kind of decide what would be harmful, what reflects our policy positions, and how to um, communicate with elected officials accordingly. I mean, that sort of multi-sectoral, larger scale seems to be so important uh, to rounding out the vision of this. So it's not entirely focused in on one group. Multiple stakeholders, always the sort of best way to go. It complicates it for sure, um, because everybody does have a different viewpoint and a different experience in the industry. But they do a really good job making sure that they listen to each other and that we kind of, it's not so much compromise as much as taking into account what is the safest, most professional stance and then putting that into practice. So speaking of what is the safest, most professional stance, you talked about you know, legislation, things that have been put out there into the ether uh, that is maybe detrimental, not keeping in mind uh, safety, whether it's for the salon professional, the salon owner, the client, et cetera. Um, one such bill was introduced in West Virginia. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the heck is happening there and what has 
PBA's response been? Absolutely. So West Virginia House Bill 2325 would allow anyone to practice beauty services as long as the products used are generally available to the public. So it's kind of a roundabout and vague language, but this is a total deregulation bill. It would allow anyone to practice. Um, and it's kind of more detrimental in that it's roundabout because it's hard to make sure that lawmakers can see this is what it is doing. When it is done in very plain language, it's a lot easier to speak to, um, but you first kind of have to explain that this language is doing that and then get to the bottom of why that's a problem. So what happened in West Virginia is that this bill was introduced in the House, it passed committee, it passed House, and then in the Senate committee, it was amended to add this language. That makes it so that industry input has a very small window. We have a very mm -hmm. small amount of time to say, okay, we need to act on this. This is how we educate the lawmakers. And there's a lot less people that we're able to get the ear of and say, this is why it is detrimental. So um, we did reach out to the sponsor of the bill as soon as we saw the language come through. We have a tracking system for legislation for all 50 states. And um, we have probably almost 800 bills in there right now. So Myra is very busy <laughs> <laughs> um, reading through those to make sure that, you know, this tricky language isn't getting past us. We reached out to the sponsor of the bill and we said, you know, what is your intent with this? Because that is kind of part of our process is to make sure that we understand what they're trying to do. Um, and if they understand what the language they're putting in there would do. Um, and he was pretty vague in his response and saying, we just want to make sure that the state board is not regulating this. Um, and so, you know, bells went off and we said, this is something that we need to work against. So um, we wrote letters to legislature. We reached out to everybody that we knew in the industry. And then we built um, a digital campaign, which is pretty standard for us for anything that we are trying to fight on a large scale. So our digital campaigns um, allow industry professionals to fairly easily reach out to their legislators, the people mm -hmm. that represent them and the people who are introducing the bills to say that um, here's who I am, here's what I do in the industry, and this is why I oppose this bill. Um, in the last few years, as these digital advocacy tools have become more and more used, um, we're finding that lawmakers increasingly don't like the form letters. You know, they, they can ignore, you know, they get mm -hmm. a thousand or something. It's like, whatever. And um, so we've kind of tried to meet that need and figure out ways to make it personal, but also make it easy to take action. Anybody who has gone through that, we make it so you can only take action if you're in that state, because you're going to have somebody that represents you in that state to communicate with, um, would go in and they would answer a few questions. And those questions would help us build an email for them that kind of says, here's my name, here's where I live these are the reasons that I oppose this bill. And they're different for different segments of the industry. So that kind of helps the lawmakers see like this is a person who is speaking to me about this subject. I mean, we also make all of those messages editable. So if people in the industry want to go in and, you know, add to the message, they absolutely can. Um, and then we also make uh, tweeting and calling the office available to them. So We've had about 1,800 people, I think, take action through that. We were uh, very grateful that people in the industry and different um, people with bigger audiences were able to share that for us. Uh, I mean, we have a pretty good amount of advocates in every state, which is amazing. And uh, 2020 certainly helped fuel that. People were able to see that their voice was going to make a difference and that they could participate. And so... 
that has made it easier this year to fight these, these state um, bills that have come through. So that is where we're at. Um, that bill was actually moving pretty quickly through the legislature uh, as it was happening. And I don't think that we have had any movement on that. I didn't check the date before this, but it's been probably a month. Um, so that tells me that maybe they are hearing us and I am hopeful that that is the case. And we will of course continue to watch that bill if it gets any movement, if it gets a vote, the industry will absolutely know. Um, we make sure that we you know, keep the communication up at every point as, as things happen. So, I mean, incredible news in West Virginia, speaking to the power of you know, people actively getting together, doing something, making sure that their reps are hearing them. You address the fact that there's something like 800 pieces of legislation in the pipeline, something big. What are you hearing from lawmakers across the country in terms of why they would maybe want to introduce legislation that would deregulate at this moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this moment is is a very interesting one, certainly. But I don't think that their reasoning for wanting to do, deregulate has necessarily changed from 2019. Uh, we really did anticipate that this year, I mean, all state legislatures kind of shut down early last year, right? The state closed and legislation that was not completely pertinent to COVID didn't really happen. Um, and so what we anticipated this year was that anything that had to do with health and safety would kind of fizzle out at least for a little while. And what we're finding is that is absolutely just not what happened. Anybody who had an agenda in 2020 just saved it for 2021. So we're not only seeing what would have come through in 2021, we're also seeing what didn't get introduced in 2020. And I don't think that their reasoning for introducing it has necessarily changed. People who are in powers to change laws and think that deregulating is the way to go and that we should reduce barriers to entry at any cost, still believe that with or without COVID. So what do you say to those folks? I mean, you said this, I mean, it's really like they had this agenda before, they wanted to make this happen. They're sort of just tacking it on to the, the moment, sort of sliding it in. What do you say to folks that think that deregulation is going to be the solve for um, in terms of making the industry stronger? I don't receive much communication from people in the industry. So certainly I would say that I'm talking to lawmakers. I think that once you're in the industry, you recognize why um, this industry needs licensing because it is a professional industry and it does have huge implications on um, the consumers that you're serving. But for lawmakers, I think that it absolutely is time just very poor timing because we have seen throughout this crisis that the reason that COVID is not spreading in salons and you know we did a national survey after we surveyed California and New York and we found that out of the over 2,500 salons across the nation um, they served over 2 million clients since reopening from state mandated shutdowns they had a COVID-19 transmittal rating of 0.07% while there's room for reform in the industry, um, you know, as far as reciprocity and that sort of thing, we are definitely seeing that licensing is a benefit to public health uh, by uh, and large. I mean, that's very obvious because we've seen how um, COVID has spread like wildfire in so many situations, and that's really just not happening in salons. Uh, to that point, I mean, we've talked about this. It's curious timing as to why now would be the time to explore deregulation. Um, is there really a coherent 
sort of argument for it other than regulation is bad? Like, what is the PBA's take on that? It varies from state to state, but there are think tanks like the Institute for Justice who want to see barriers to entry um, brought down. And it's not uh, necessarily industry specific. It's just where can they get an easy win? Um, and once they hit one state, it's easier for them to say, well, this state deregulated this. So why would you have it regulated here? Um, and I think, you know, we've seen this year that uh, deregulation often takes many years to see what the detriment is of it. And so you can't necessarily say that something was DA regulated last year in this state. So obviously that's common sense because we're not seeing the effects. And if it's not regulated, we're not hearing about it, you know, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because if it's not, there's no oversight from the state board, there's no way to really see that um, until something, you know, bad enough happens that it, it it's uncovered. Yeah, sometimes it is think tanks, sometimes it's just lawmakers that come in and they say, where can we reduce barriers? For me, I think that these things aren't necessarily helping a lot of people, but it's an easy win to say, we deregulated this, here's how it's going to help people. But there aren't people who, that I've seen very often, who want to come into the industry and are saying, I don't want to get educated to come into the industry. And I certainly think that once they get educated, they see that that was absolutely the correct choice. And it is what needs to be done to protect consumers' health and safety. Uh, so, I mean, you talked a little bit about how this is one way in which the PBA is supporting its members, supporting the industry um, in terms of taking this head on the issue of deregulation. Um, it also sounds a little bit like you wish this were not where you had to spend so much effort. Um, where is it that the PBA would prefer that lawmakers focus in order to better serve the salon professional industry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, some states really are... Uh putting their priorities in spaces that are going to help the industry, such as reciprocity laws. And we worked with the NCSL and CSG to kind of look at licensing and what is common sense reform, um, not just in the beauty industry, though obviously that is our um, area of expertise to contribute to, but what can we do because licensing is done um, differently in all 50 states? And you know, some states have reasonings for doing things differently, but generally throughout industries, it is something that we want to make sure that if you're moving state to state, it's not a huge pain to change your licensing. So reciprocity, making sure that people are trained in one state are able to move to another state. Um, another thing is criminal backgrounds where uh, often people have criminal backgrounds that are not related to the profession in any manner, but they're not able to move into the profession once, you know, they've kind of moved on from that. It's just kind of a, a red mark and uh, it's not helpful at all to making sure that the incarceration rate is um, improved and people are able to get to work. Um, mobile licensing, hairstyling, putting that so that people can just get the hairstyling if they just don't want to do nails and skin. Um, so, you know, reducing barriers as much as possible in a way that still allows for licensure. Um, this is a little bit pie in the sky, uh, but certainly lots of folks have floated out this idea um, that maybe we should just do away with state licensing 
um, and instead move towards a federal model um, in which it does sort of address some of the issues of reciprocity if one moves from one to another, not necessarily needing to go and see what this state looks like versus what their previous state looked like. Um, what is your thoughts on that? Maybe not the PBAs, um, yeah, but is this something absolutely. that you imagine down the road that the industry might embrace um, or is it too sort of out there? Yeah, I appreciate you asking personally because that is definitely a thought-provoking question. Yeah. And I just think that's, I think it's a great idea. And there are interstate compacts that say that, you know, we recognize this license and this license. And I think that strengthening the reciprocity is great. Um, I don't think that's really how we do it in the United States. You know, we've really given the power to the states to say, you can do this how you see fit. And um, I anticipate that it'll continue that way. I don't, I, I think that the industry absolutely may embrace the ability to do that. And I think doing that in a manner that standards are more cohesive from state to state is definitely doable. I just don't see it ever happening where you're going to register nationally or at a federal level instead of doing it at the state level. Now, before we go into our quick takes, which is just before the end of our interview, I want to hear from you. Um, we've talked a bit about what PBA is currently responding to, sort of the agenda, as it were, as it takes on other sort of aspects. But talk to us a little bit about initiatives that are currently happening, things that are coming up that the PBA wants to, to get the word out about. Absolutely. Well, um, we did just finish our digital ISSC event. So that was our first full digital trade show. Uh, it went amazing. We kind of had to have all hands on deck for that. Um, it was obviously not how we wanted to put it on. We wanted to be in person with everyone. It still went off so beautifully. We were able to do some wonderful Q&A, be very interactive. And I think that's really going to kind of guide us moving forward in having a kind of digital slash in-person events to make sure that we are able to include so much more of the industry. So from an education perspective, definitely that. Um, advocacy, you know, we're always trying to build to make sure that the industry understands how to advocate for themselves and when they have issues that they want to get done, they know where to start and how to make it happen. Um, we do have some content on the advocacy site. Um, we have Deregulation 101 for people who just don't quite understand where this deregulation is coming from, as well as communicating with your elected officials. Obviously, last year showed us that it's not just licensing bills coming through that you're going to want to uh, communicate with your elected officials. You're going to want to communicate with your elected officials at a city level, at a county level, at a state level, and then federally, you know, PBA has been working on uh, tax fairness at a federal level. So certainly it's always great to have those relationships as well. Um, but I don't want to um, intimidate anyone to say you need to have all of those relationships. It really comes down to what is a priority to you and then how do you get it done? And so we want to be there to make sure that we give you all the tools you need to figure out how to get the things that you want to get done done. Um, and so those toolkits kind of help guide the process of what are my priorities? How do I get started on them? And then we're always here to be a resource um, to help you figure out what the next step might be um, on a very individual level. And, and I really love that. Incredible. PBA is giving you the tools that you need wherever you're at. Um, and we will be linking to a bunch of them within the show notes. So Katie, thank you so much. We're going to talk about now some quick takes before we wrap. These are the questions that we ask of all of our guests. Okay. Try not to think about it too much. We're going to look for the fastest response um, and we're going to play nice. So don't worry. First thing that we ask, just to get us going, bar soap or body wash? Uh, body wash, definitely. 
Okay. All right. Fine. Fine. There's a few people that really do like the the bar soap of it all, like the eco responsibility. It just, but yeah, I'm also of a, a body wash <laughs> persuasion. Speaking of products, I mean, we are product hounds, hair, body, face, everything. Um, what is a product that you are loving right now? Uh, I would say Kevin Murphy bedroom hair texturizing spray. What's your favorite thing about it? Ah, you just so little work. You just stick it in there. It's good to go. You know what I mean? There's it's, it's dumb proof. You know, I, I don't have to do a lot of work. I don't need my stylist to show me how to use it. I just put it in there. I got the volume. Good to go. Boom. The dream. Love that. All right. So we talked about 2020 coronavirus pandemic, all of that stuff. I mean, we're working from home that has forced a lot of us to do a lot of streaming. So what are you streaming of late? Uh, I am still stuck on Folklore by Taylor Swift. All right. Deep cuts. <laughs> Forever. Big win at the Grammys. So congrats to, to yeah, Taylor for... So glad for her. Nobody working harder in the industry, uh, in the music industry. Yeah, she brought so, it in 2020. Fair, fair. We were all at home. She was like, I'm busy. <laughs> Very busy. Two albums. Um, okay. <laughs> All right. Real talk, words of advice for pros or anybody who wants to get to the top of their industry. Um, you, for example, talked about your progression within the PBA to where you are now. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think that my role in the industry is very different from industry professionals, but mm -hmm. the things... But there's some commonalities. Yeah, ask questions, make sure that you're involved, make sure that you're speaking up in the rooms that you're in and making sure that you're always in different rooms. Never be afraid to ask questions. I think that um, being afraid of looking dumb is always going to impede your growth. So just always keep, keep figuring stuff out and be humble enough to make sure that you're asking the questions that you want answered. 2021. We're in the thick of it. It's crazily enough, almost April. What are your predictions for the industry? This does not need to be PBA sanctioned. Okay. Uh, gosh, I think there's just going to be so much creativity and innovation as soon as everybody's able to get in the same room again. Um, and I'm so excited for that. Uh, I can already see that innovation happening as we kind of mash together the things that we've learned in 2020 and then the ability to do everything that we we're able to do in 2019. So I think that we are on our way. Uh, Arizona just announced today that they are giving the COVID vaccine to everyone 16 and older starting on Wednesday. So that is woohoo, um, so exciting. And I think that, you know, everybody is going to follow suit soon. And hopefully in the second half of the year, we're all going to be able to be together and I just cannot wait to see what happens. I think so much creativity is going to come to fruition. There's no way to end better than that. Katie, Katie Raposa, Advocacy Manager for the PBA. Everybody, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Katie, for your time. We really appreciate you joining us today. Um, and yeah, don't be a stranger. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jeffrey. This was really fun. What did you think? I mean, it's so interesting. I know that on the digital side of the coin, if you will, the state organized licensing has slowed the industry's growth with B2B, e-commerce, and caused a host of other database challenges. I mean, we'll be interested to see as the industry evolves, how this topic continues um, to be the ring around the rosy type of tradition. I mean, it's getting old, right? <laughs> 
And we know that there was a lot of information that was presented here, both from yeah. Mike, from Katie, from myself, from Kelly. We're going to include everything, all of the appropriate resources within the show notes. So look for some links there. Be sure to hit subscribe, rate and review and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and TikTok at Read the Tease and send in questions to volume up at thetease.com. Volume Up is a Tease Media production. This episode was produced by Monica Hickey and Stephen Jolly. Thank you to our creative team for putting together the graphics for this episode and to Josh Landowski for editing so you can watch and listen on YouTube.